Jamie from the Crawford City. I am Jamie Cheek, and this is a view from the couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And even though today's episode is all about the college football preview, we are going to actually start with the Atlanta Braves, who for the first time since 2001 uh, won a postseason series yesterday, beating the Reds 5 to nothing in game two of the wild card series after beating the Reds one to nothing in an excruciatingly uh, long, I wouldn't necessarily say boring, but uneventful for sure. Game one where the Braves won one to nothing on a Freddie Freeman walk off single in the 13th inning. So the Braves have moved on, which is great news. Uh, It's definitely a step forward. The, I think the headline for anybody who was paying attention is that Max Fried and Ian Anderson pitched absolutely great. I mean, maybe two of the best starts from any Brave starting pitchers this entire year. It does help that all of the uh, the struggling that the Braves did throughout the season was really done by other starting pitchers. So it's, it's very beneficial for the Braves that this series did not go to a third game, even though Kyle Wright has pitched better in his last few starts. But Absolutely fantastic performances from Freed and Anderson, and a fantastic performance from the bullpen, who was excellent in the 13-inning game on Monday, or sorry, the first game on Wednesday, and then pitched great again yesterday in relief of Ian Anderson. So uh, they will now move on, the Braves will now move on and play either the Cubs or the Marlins, who... Uh, the Marlins lead that series 1-0 right now. They were supposed to play game two yesterday, but the game got called off due to weather. So game two will happen today. If the Marlins win today, it will be Braves and Marlins in the division series. If the Marlins lose today, then there will be a deciding third game tomorrow in Chicago. Uh, but by Saturday afternoon, or I guess Saturday evening, uh, we will know who the Braves' opponent is going to be in the next round. We will have a full preview of the National League Division Series, which will start on Tuesday next week. We will have a full preview on our Monday weekend review episode of the podcast. Now, I want to kind of look at two different sides of this coin when it comes to the Braves. I think it would be wrong for Braves fans not to enjoy this. You know, it it has been. I was 16 years old the last time the Braves won a playoff series in 2001 when they beat the Astros and then eventually lost in the NLCS against the Diamondbacks. This was a month and a half. That series happened a month and a half after 9-11. I mean, it was a long time ago. But I think we also have to keep it in perspective because the This series only happened due to the expanded playoffs. So the Braves have now advanced to be exactly where they were a year ago and the year before that and where they were in 2013. So the Braves have advanced to the division series. So while winning a postseason series is a very big deal for this team, for the franchise, for the players who obviously there's nobody on this team, uh, at least in an on-field role, who had ever won a playoff series, uh, at least not as a member of the Atlanta Braves, it, it's a big deal. But at the same time, it is not a step up or a step forward. The way I've tried to think about it is if if you had a ladder and each season you expect to go, you know, one higher rung on the ladder, well, going higher on the ladder for this year would mean making it to the NLCS. So that would mean not just winning one series, But this year, it means winning two series and actually making the league championship series for the first time since 2001. And so the problem that the Braves have, and I say problem, I I think just for the fan base is they won a series. So in a way, you want to say that that's success. But at the same time, we didn't take another step on that ladder. We just added a rung below the step that we had been on before. So we win the East again. That's fantastic. The Braves played really, really well uh, in, in this series. I mean, you know, you can look at it and say, hey, they only scored one run in 13 innings on Wednesday in game one. But Trevor Bauer is going to be the National League Cy Young Award winner. And the Braves managed to win the game against him. Now, he didn't take the loss, obviously, but the Braves stuck in there. The pitching hung in there and it gave the chance, the, the team a chance to win. So 
I don't think there's any huge concern coming out of this wild card series. You won two games and you move on. That's the best you could possibly hope for. But for the long-term upward trajectory of the franchise, I think we have to recognize that this is not a huge win yet. And this is not, to me, a situation where if the Braves lose in the next round, it does not matter if it's the Cubs. It does not matter if it's the Marlins. If the Braves don't make the LCS, I don't think you can look at this season and really feel like you've gone any further than you have in the past because the reality is we we will not have gone any further than we have in the past. So a little, very little bit of baseball talk before we get to football, but that's where we're going right now. And after week one in college football, and I say week one because to me, no offense to the ACC and the Big 12 who have had some games going on for the past few weeks, but last weekend was the first weekend that truly felt like a college football weekend. I think if even if you are a fan of the ACC or the Big 12, these previous weekends almost felt like week zero because it there, there wasn't a full slate of games. Even if you could find one game you were semi-excited about, it wasn't enough to make you feel like you could just plop down and watch 12 hours of football for an entire Saturday. And that's what college football fans, true college football fans, love to do. And so after the first week of the SEC, and, and like I said, what I consider to be the first full weekend of college football, we have three things. That I, or a couple of things I think that we can kind of talk about. First, you have a, a couple of upsets, and that's one of the things that makes the sport great. LSU losing at home to Mississippi State, that was a big upset. And then obviously Oklahoma, who was ranked number three in the country, losing at home to a Kansas State team that lost to Arkansas State two weeks before. To me, that is a much bigger upset. But a couple of upsets make it now. We're starting to feel like it's college football season a little bit. The other thing that we have is we have a lot of overreactions. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, you have Miami who moved into the top 10 because they beat a putrid Florida State team. So now we're supposed to believe that Miami's a top 10 team. And just in case you weren't paying attention, the Big Ten and Pac-12 teams are eligible to be back in the rankings now. So they're in a top 10 that includes – those teams. So Miami, to me, uh, we'll find out a lot about them next week. They're off this week, and then they play Clemson next week. So I guess we're about to find out about the Hurricanes. But it's just funny to me that a team like Miami, who has won three games but really has not beat anybody impressive, they beat a ranked Louisville team two weeks ago. But if you watch that game, you didn't think you were watching a top 25 matchup while you were watching the game. Louisville just looked awful, and it looked like it was a – a ranked Louisville team because of the circumstances, not because they actually deserve to be ranked. So Miami's won three games, and I guess that's enough to make you a top 10 team now. Another thing, and, and, and this is going to sound like a Georgia Homer point of view, but Florida jumped UGA in the standings. Now, I will start by saying that this doesn't matter whatsoever. And anybody at this point in the season who is getting worked up or enamored with a ranking is absolutely crazy. So I don't want to come across as worked up or enamored with the fact that the polls shifted Florida in front of Georgia. It's just funny to me that they would have chosen to do that based on the fact that Florida's win over Ole Miss, yes, it was impressive. They scored 51 points. They won the game 51-35 on the road in the SEC. That's great. The problem is they won the game 51-35. They they gave up 35 points to first-year head coach Lane Kiffin, and this new offense at Ole Miss, they gave up over 600 yards of total offense. Matt Corral, in his first game as Ole Miss's starting quarterback, threw for 395 yards, which none of that is the fault of Florida. And it doesn't take anything away from the, the offensive production that Florida had on the other side and the impressive win that they had. It's just funny to me that anybody would look at that and they would move Florida up based on giving up 600 yards to an Ole Miss team that did not make a bowl game last year. The last overreaction is it comes from one of those uh, upsets we talked about earlier. Mississippi State and Mike Leach, this is this is the overreaction. Uh, they're going to change SEC football forever because they went in to Death Valley and threw for over 600 yards on the defending national champion. The reason that this is a big overreaction is because, one, 
This is a defending national champion LSU, but this is a defending national champion LSU, the likes of which we have not seen defending national champions in a very long time. That is to say that they lost pretty much everybody, and they lost pretty much everything off of the title team from last year. So, you know, LSU was ranked in the top 10. It's not to take away anything from the win, but to pretend like this was last year's LSU's LSU team that Mike Leach did this to would be completely disingenuous. The fact that their best defensive player ended up not even playing in the game because of a hospitalization unrelated to COVID on Friday night, I think has a lot to do with the fact that the LSU defense looked awful. Not to mention the LSU defense wasn't spectacular last year. They were good, but they weren't. I mean, they won because of their offense. So, the overreaction is that now SEC football will change forever because Mike Leach is going to change it. I do think it's headed in a certain direction, but it's been heading that direction for a long time, right? You know, we see that LSU and Alabama have been winning the league with offense the last few years. It hasn't been about defense. There's opening questions now about Georgia being an elite team without having an elite offense and having just an elite defense. So I think it's fun. It's just what college football is supposed to be about. You're supposed to be able to get really, really worked up and really passionate and really opinionated over what happens over three and a half hours in a game on a given Saturday afternoon. The only problem with week one is we still don't have enough of a data set to draw any conclusions from it. Upsets happen every single week in college football. Strange things happen every single week in college football. There's a reason that they play more than three or four games in a season because you need an entire season to really understand who teams are and what you can expect from them. And I think the Georgia-Auburn game, to kind of get into our preview of that today, the Georgia-Auburn game is a perfect example of everybody's already drawn conclusions about both of these teams coming into the game. And I say everybody, meaning the fans and the pundits. Coming into this game, the narrative is that Georgia is already underwhelming. That, yeah, they're the top, they're the number four team in the country, but they're not really. That offense was so terrible last week. You know, uh, Saturday, no, 247 Sports this week ran a story. And the headline of the story, and it was actually about Arkansas, it talked about Arkansas getting ready to play Mississippi State after a near upset of Georgia. That was the headline of the story. Now, let's take two breaths and realize that Arkansas lost at home by 27 points to Georgia. That is in no way a near upset. And again, I'm not just being a homer and trying to pretend like Georgia's performance against Arkansas was great, but there's no such thing as an upset at halftime. And that's what last week would have been because, yes, Arkansas was leading 7-5 to five at halftime. So if that is what constitutes a near upset from now on, we'll just kind of have to keep up with that and see how many teams at the end of the year end up being nearly upset because they were losing at halftime. The reality is Georgia played terrible in the first half on offense. They didn't play particularly well on defense in the first half. They committed a lot of penalties and they looked like a team that was playing in their first game and they were playing on the road. In the second half, they made some adjustments and they looked like a very good football team. Now, I completely understand all of the questions that everybody has when it comes to Stetson Bennett and JT Daniels and DeWan Mathis and Todd Munkin's offense. We're going to get into all that over the course of today's podcast. But to try to draw any conclusions, not even from a game, but just simply from a half and a first half when we saw a completely different team in the second half is a little bit crazy. The only thing crazier than that is thinking that Auburn is a national title contender because they won a game at home against Kentucky. Now, I picked Kentucky to win that game last week, and if you watch the game, which I'm not 100% sure how many of the pundits that are talking about that game actually watched it, but if you watch that game and you came away from that game thinking, wow, Auburn looked really good, we have two different definitions of what really good is. Auburn played fine. They played under control. But Kentucky had every opportunity to win that game. And honestly, they just wet the bed. Kentucky played well and they just managed to lose. And I'm not trying to be funny, but it to me, 
I think of that game much more of a Kentucky loss than an Auburn win. And that's not a knock against Auburn. Don't worry. When we get to our enemy segment later in the podcast today, there's going to be plenty of being rude to Auburn. But if you watch that game, it was not a thumping. It wasn't a big win for Auburn. It was a solid victory over a team that imploded in the second half in Kentucky. And at the end of the day, I don't see how that translates to an Auburn team that's going on the road to play tomorrow night in Sanford Stadium against the number four team in the country. And man, Georgia doesn't even have a chance. So the overreaction part of college football is part of the fun. But after a single week, we really have to watch ourselves because after tomorrow, we're going to have 100% more data to draw conclusions from. And I will be very surprised if some of the things we thought we knew after one week are completely and totally wrong after week two. we did last week we're going to go four downs in our preview of Georgia for the coming weekend and on first down I want to talk about the offense and this has been the topic of conversation ever since the game against Arkansas started last week what in the world is going on with the Georgia offense and I had a working theory after the game that I talked about a little bit on the earlier uh, podcast this week but I wanted to go to an expert, and that's what I did, and I submitted a question for the UGA Sports Live podcast with Jim Donnan that actually got answered on the air uh, on their podcast, and the question was simply this to Coach Donnan. Everybody's talking about the quarterback position. Was that really the problem with the offense against Arkansas? And exactly what I thought he would say is what he said. He said the quarterback play wasn't great for Mathis in the first half, but the problem with this offense last week, and it will continue to be unless something changes, is the offensive line. So if you are a casual college football fan or just a football fan in general, and you're watching a game and you're watching an offense and you think to yourself, everything about this looks wrong, nine times out of ten, It's not the receiver or the running back or the quarterback or any of the play calling. It's got to do with something that's the most foundational thing in football, which is line play. And Georgia's offensive line play was really, really bad in the first half. It got somewhat better in the second half, but Todd Munkin also started calling the offense differently because of the poor offensive line play that he saw in the first half. So adjustments were made in the second half. It was not as simple as DeWan Mathis stinks, and then when we put Stetson Bennett in there, he played great. If you think that, that's fine. Everybody, this is America. You are entitled to be wrong. But the offensive line play and the play calling had much more to do with it than simply changing the quarterback. So just know that when an offensive line looks as bad as Georgia's did in the first half, it's an offensive line problem. And so I don't want to throw a lot of names because I don't feel like it was a singular issue or a singular problem. Just to say this, eight offensive linemen played snaps in this game, and that is a problem just on the surface. Because if you have seven or eight offensive linemen that are consistently rotating in and out, what it really means is that you don't have a five-guy combination that you feel like you can put in there and be effective. So Georgia wasn't rotating offensive linemen the way they rotate defensive linemen to try to keep people fresh or because of some kind of early season conditioning issue. They were rotating offensive linemen trying to find a formula that worked because it just wasn't working. The person that started at center, Trey Hill, ended up playing guard, and it sounds like he may be a guard moving forward. You had a guy at right tackle in Owen Condon who played some in the first half, ends up getting yanked, and you put McClendon in there at right tackle. There are a lot of questions about Georgia's offensive line, and the only reason that this isn't a huge problem for Georgia in this game against Auburn on Saturday is because Auburn's defensive line is not great. Now, they're good, and they're plenty good enough. They're better than Arkansas, which may be what your thought was. They're plenty good enough if Georgia's offensive line play doesn't improve over last week. They're plenty good enough to give Georgia a lot of problems on Saturday night. But I think Matt Luke's a good coach. I think actually being able to get on the field and see his players play, it seems like from the reports that are coming out of practice, which is still close, so we still don't know a ton about what's going on in practice, 
But from what is being reported out of practice, it seems like they have made some changes and they feel pretty good about a kind of a different plan and a different way forward on the offensive line. But the only thing that I think you can really draw from the first week in Georgia's offense is there was a lot of things that went wrong. And at the foundation and the center of it all was the fact that the offensive line did not play well at all. On second down, we're going to move to what I am going to call an identity crisis for Georgia, because if there's two things that Georgia's known for, it's defense and running the ball. And the defense played well last week. However, there was a specific issue, and that's the fact that Traylon Burks, who you know we talked about in last week's po- uh, podcast leading up to the game, he was the leading receiver for Arkansas last year, but that's not saying much. He had seven catches for 102 yards and a touchdown. And yes, even though 49 of those yards came on a single play, um, 49 of those yards came on a single play, which meant Georgia gave up a 49-yard pass play to Traylon Burks and to Felipe Franks. Pause for effect. So Georgia's defense overall played a good game, but when you talk about Gus Malzani and you talk about the offense that they play, where they are going to throw the ball a lot and where they are going to try to attack Georgia downfield, they Georgia better figure out something in the secondary because this is a position group that Kirby Smart is hands-on with. And there were two guys in particular. Mark Webb struggled a little bit. Tyreek Stevenson, number seven, struggled a lot. He got beat multiple times. And if Georgia struggles as poor, as badly as they did in the first half, uh, in the secondary, if they struggle that same way this week against Auburn, there's a good chance that Auburn comes in here and blows Georgia out, and I'm not being dramatic when I say that. It's an issue. Again, a complete. when you look at the whole defense, the defense played well, but when you look at that secondary and when you know, I mean, really, if Georgia was playing old, or uh, Mississippi State this week with the way they throw the ball, I would be scared to death because what I saw in rewatching the game from last week was Georgia didn't play great against the pass, at least not early, and they didn't get a lot of pressure early. So whether it's getting pressure and slowing the quarterback down before they can make plays downfield or whether it's doing a better job of covering in the secondary, one of those two things need to change or what we're going to see from Georgia's defense this week is not going to be an overall positive. It's going to be something where a lot of points are going to be given up to Auburn because of a very specific issue in the secondary. The other thing, and maybe this is a lot more scary, uh, the other thing that we have to deal with is the fact that Georgia's identity for years, I mean, as long as I've been alive and before that, has been the ability to run the football. And there was no running of the football that we could talk about last week. So, Again, I've already talked about the offensive line play. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was just struggling on the offensive line. But I will at least submit to you that there may be a bigger problem for Georgia. And it may be that while we have a lot of good running backs, and I think we do. I think Samir White's a good running back. I think, especially based on the way that um, that Kenny McIntosh played on special teams, he obviously has talent. James Cook obviously has talent. But I think it would be fair to say that there's not a DeAndre Swift on this team. There's not a Noshon Moreno or a Todd Gurley or a Nick Chubb on this team right now. So while Georgia has good backs, it doesn't seem like Georgia has any great backs. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, you know, jumping the gun on this a little bit. But it could be an issue. And the fact that Georgia threw the ball so much last week It may not just be because Todd Munkin wants to do things differently. It may be because Georgia's having a little bit of an identity crisis, or maybe we're just seeing a new identity for this Georgia offense and that they're not going to run the ball the way they have in the past. Let the records show that we waited till third down to talk about the only thing anybody wants to talk about when it comes to the Georgia offense this week. It's been all about the quarterbacks, who's going to play, when are they going to play, what happened last week. Why did Jamie Newman leave? Who beat Jamie Newman out for the job? All of the crazy stuff that's been talking about. But here's the deal. 
We talked about the offensive line and the running backs before we talked about the quarterback, and I want to be commended for that. Now, moving on to the topic itself. I don't really know, and I don't think anybody could say with any kind of certainty what is going on with the Georgia quarterback position right now, other than to say it is the most important singular position in sports. And if it turns out that week one is indicative of the quarterback situation for this entire year, Georgia fans take a breath. Georgia's going to lose more than two games and maybe even three or four games this year, okay? It's not going to be a fantastic year if Georgia doesn't get better quarterback play. And I am including the second half that Stetson Bennett had because it was good, but Arkansas sucks. So what he did was what we should have been able to do the whole time, no matter who the quarterback was. So there's some big issues. And like I've already said, they're offensive issues to worry about. But at the end of the day, you do have to have a quarterback who can get you in the right place, who can make the right checks at the line of scrimmage, and who can execute this offense. Now, I feel pretty confident to say that more than one quarterback will end up playing this weekend. And maybe I'm wrong. It sounds like Stetson Bennett's going to be the starter. He could go in there, play well, manage the offense, maybe even do better than manage the offense. He could play well and move the offense, and that could be it. And it could be a, you know, 2017 kind of repeat of itself where you have somebody you thought was going to be the starter, Mathis Daniels. That's kind of where all the conversation's been. Stetson Bennett comes in and plays well. We've seen Kirby Smart just ride the hot hand. So it could be Stetson Bennett, but for me, I don't think Stetson Bennett is talented enough just with his God-given ability. I don't think he's talented enough to beat the best teams in the SEC, and even though I do think Auburn is completely overrated, I also think that they're one of the better teams in the SEC. So when you're looking down the road and you say, okay, now you got Auburn, you got Tennessee on the road at Alabama, home against, or uh, then you got on the road at Kentucky, and then you're talking about playing Florida. That's the next five games for Georgia. I don't, I don't think Stetson Bennett can lead Georgia through that stretch without picking up at least two or three losses. I just don't. And maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But just based on the fact that this is a walk-on who is now on scholarship but transferred out of the program, you know, he doesn't have the elite kind of talent which doesn't mean that he can't be a game manager, but I think in 2020 you cannot be successful at the top level of college football with a game manager at quarterback. We'll see if he proves me wrong, but I think we're going to see more than one quarterback, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. So for me, I know a lot of people uh, want to write off to Juan Mathis. I am not one of those people. I just feel like his skill set is way too versatile for him to be done now and to just move on. You know, Bennett is too limited in his skill set, and I just think Mathis can do too many things just to write him off. Obviously, the wild card is JT Daniel. Now, earlier in the week at the press conference, Kirby Smart says he's cleared to play. Or, I'm excuse, excuse me, I messed it up. He will be cleared to play. So we are not sure (laughs) when he said that if he was already cleared and he was able to practice all week or if they assumed or they expected him to be cleared to play by Saturday. I do feel very comfortable in saying that unless Bennett and Mathis both struggle very, very much against Auburn, which is going to be an awful situation for Georgia, I don't think J.D. Daniels will end up being a significant player on Saturday. I think if Daniels has a significant player, that means something is going terribly, terribly wrong for Georgia. Who knows? Nobody knows. The only thing I've been able to see is that apparently Daniels is working with the scout team while the first team reps are going with Bennett and Mathis. So if that is any indication that Bennett's going to start the game with Juan Mathis being the backup, and that means that JT Daniel is the third-string quarterback. Now, you may be asking yourself, why wouldn't we give him a shot? And I think the answer goes back to first down when we talk about the offensive line. In the first half, three or four big plays were, or big defensive plays for Arkansas were avoided by the mobility of DeWan Mathis. So say what you want about his overall performance. 
he was able in the first half when the offensive line was absolute garbage, he was able to keep Georgia out of some terrible second, third, and long situations just by being able to scramble and get out of the pocket. If Daniel's knee is not any better, or if it's not significantly better than it was, the fact that he couldn't play last week, it all has to do with the knee. There's no other reason he would have been standing on the sideline watching the game fully dressed out on the road in the SEC when there's a limit of 70 guys that can go on that trip. He wasn't cleared because of his knee. And so if his knee wasn't good enough to play last week, even if it has improved, as it seems like it has continuously improved and gotten better over the last few weeks, you cannot put a guy back there who's not 100% comfortable with his knee if this offensive line situation isn't worked out. So from a just logical standpoint, I don't see how they go to JT Daniel unless they are supremely desperate. And I think everybody that's listening to this podcast as a Georgia fan can hope we don't find ourselves in a situation where we're that desperate on Saturday night. Fourth down, we're going to start to really go after the Tigers because we're going to talk about the showdown on Saturday night. We're not talking about the teams. We're not talking about Georgia's offense versus Auburn's defense. We're not talking about the Auburn offense versus the Georgia's defense. We're talking about the head guys. We're talking about Kirby versus Gus. And if there's one thing that Georgia fans can take into this game to make them feel supremely confident, it's the Kirby versus Gus matchup because Kirby Smart is 4-1 against Gus Malzahn as a head coach. He's beaten Auburn in every single season. The one loss obviously came in 2017 on the road at Auburn when Georgia was the number one team in the country. And we all remember that was a horrible, horrible game from the dogs. We also all remember that three weeks later, Georgia avenged that loss in the SEC championship game. So in the four losses that Gus Malzahn has had against Kirby Smart as a head coach, the Gus bus has completely broken down. Auburn has only averaged about 9.5 points per game in those four losses. So anyone that's touting the Auburn offense this week did not, as I've already said, watch that Kentucky game. So it was a 15-13 to 13 game in the fourth quarter, and that's when Kentucky gave Auburn on back-to-back possessions, very short fields to score two more touchdowns and end up winning the game 29-13. to So all of the complaining, all of the worry that Georgia fans have been hearing about scoring 37 points on the road at Arkansas, well, Auburn scored 29 at home, and those two drives were 23 and 27 yards in the fourth quarter that ended up giving them two extra touchdowns at the end of that game. In both of those situations... Kentucky just completely fell apart and and just did some boneheaded stuff. Not to mention that at the end of the first half, Kentucky scored a touchdown. If you watch the game, Kentucky scored a touchdown. Now, I have no idea because there was no explanation given by the referee on the field. But if you watch the broadcast, they were completely perplexed as to why the the touchdown was not scored. It's like they gave him – it's like they called the, the runner down like for forward progress, except the forward progress took them a yard into the end zone. It was a very strange sequence. On the very next play, Kentucky throws an interception, uh, and that interception was nearly run back for a touchdown at the end of the first half, except that it got called back because one of the Auburn players uh, got kicked out of the game for uh, targeting on the return. So it was a really weird uh, end of the first half. And it was just kind of a strange game. It was not an excellent offensive game from Auburn. And we're going to dig into that just a little bit more as we start talking about our enemy here in just a moment. But there's no doubt that Kirby Smart has proven in his time at head coach that he has Gus Malzahn's number. So I'm not saying that Georgia's going to win simply based on the coaches, but if it comes down to a coaching issue, you have to feel like Kirby Smart does have the advantage over Gus Malzahn. We're going to keep up your point a little bit short today because if, you, uh, if you're listening to this and you realize how much of the podcast is left, we've got a lot to cover still. Today's extra point is just this. I, I mentioned on Monday that Georgia threw 47 passes on the last Saturday against Arkansas. And I talked about the fact that that singular fact 
was an indication that this offense under Todd Munkin was going to indeed be different because as bad as Georgia played offensively in the first half and as limited as Stetson Bennett is offensively, and we saw him in the second half, Georgia threw the ball 47 times. And you might be wondering, okay, give me some context. Georgia, in the three previous seasons with Jake Fromm at quarterback, Georgia never won a game where Fromm threw more than 30 passes in a game. They lost a couple of games when Fromm had to throw when Georgia was trying to come back. But not one time in Jake Fromm's career did Georgia win a game with Fromm throwing more than 30 passes. So if you don't believe that this is a new offense at the University of Georgia, just keep watching because it is. Last week, our enemy segment was a little bit forced. I, I, I said it last week, and, and if you could tell, it's just hard to hate Arkansas. They've got Sam Pittman as their coach. I mean, trying to hate on Felipe Franks was about as best I could do. Buckle up, because it's not going to be hard to hate on Auburn. As you know, Auburn and Georgia are, is the Deep South, the oldest rivalry. Georgia leads the all-time series with the Tigers, 60-56. to 56. There have been eight ties in the uh, series history. Georgia has won 12 of the last 15 games in this series, which makes you think, let's go back in our time machines to the last time that Auburn won in Athens. It was a cold November night in 2005 when Georgia was one play away on a 4th and 16, they were one play away from clinching the SEC East, and a rather portly journalism junior was sitting in the first row of the student section. And it was on that play that Auburn gained 64 yards on 4th and 16 from a pass um, to Derek Aromashadu that was, was initially called a touchdown on the field, but the Auburn receiver actually fumbled into the end zone, and so the ball was placed at the 1, Auburn took knees, ran the clock out, and kicked a field goal with very little time left to beat Georgia 31-30. Um, it was, without a doubt, the most excruciating loss I was ever present for, uh, for the University of Georgia. It was one of the toughest losses uh, in Georgia football history. It would not have changed anything. You know, the, the, the 2005 team, did end up making the SEC championship game and eventually beat LSU for the SEC championship. And even a one-loss Georgia team would not have made it in the college or in the college football playoff. I wish uh, would not have made it in the BCS title game because you had an undefeated Texas and an undefeated USC that played a classic title game that year. But man, there was a moment right before that play started. I remember we sat in the end zone as students. And we were right there on the first row. And I just remember looking around and the, the lead up to that play. It was so loud. It was so exciting. There were players standing up on the bench on the Georgia sideline. And it you just knew. We had outplayed them the whole game. We had done everything right. And then, boom, 64-yard gain. And then just a couple of minutes later, the game was over. And we had managed to lose the game we should have won. So I'm over it, I, I think, um, maybe. That I'm, over, I'm not over it. I'm never going to be over it. But moving on, let's start talking a little bit about why we hate Auburn. And, you know, if you're a Georgia fan, you got plenty of reasons to hate Auburn. But I'm going to focus on two things. One of them is Gus Malzahn. Now, take away the fact that he made the comment on the field that ended up, I think, really costing his team in the SEC title game when he, oh, we, we really whooped the dog crap out of him. What a stupid thing to say. Say that in the locker room when you know nobody is going to, like, put that back out there, but as soon as Kirby heard that, you know he had to be so excited because he knew that his guys weren't going to need a whole lot of motivation to to get up to play Auburn again, but once they had that little added motivation, that's all they were going to need. But in reality, Gus Mazan's one of the most controversial coaches in the SEC, but in all of college football. He makes nearly $7 million per year as the Auburn head coach, but his overall record at Auburn is 63 and 31. 
He's 34 and 23 in the SEC. So Auburn won the the league and played in the last BCS championship game in 2013. That was Malzahn's first season at Auburn. But in his time at Auburn, Auburn has averaged three losses in the SEC per year. But and that's not terrible, I guess, but when you've got Alabama in the same state winning national championships every other year, it feels really, really bad. And he's supposed to be this offensive genius, right? But in his seven years at Auburn, they've never finished in the top 10 in points per game. Their average ranking, actually, in points per game in his time there is 37th. So Auburn fans, if Auburn comes to Georgia this week and loses. Auburn fans are going to start asking themselves the same question they've been asking themselves on and off for the last few years, and that's, hey, can we get rid of this guy? Because he is hyped up as this great coach. And, I mean, if you just look at his resume, he's played in a national championship game. He's won the SEC. He's beaten Alabama a couple of times. All of these things make it sound so good. But the reality of Auburn is, When they're good, they're great, and when they're not good, they're terrible. And there doesn't seem to be anything in between. You know, Georgia got rid of Jim Donnan because he was 8-4 every year. Then Georgia got rid of Mark Rick because he was 10-2 every year. You know, 10-2 at Auburn is is almost impossible. They don't do that. They're either 11-1 or 12-0, or they're like 8-4. And they've somehow managed to find a way to lose to a team like Tennessee. So for all that Gus has accomplished, which is kind of a lot, there's always an asterisk beside it. And the asterisk is always that it's just not quite enough. And it's just not quite consistent enough. Throw into the fact that his most successful season by far was that 2013 year. If you rewind the clock a little bit and you think about that, that was in the span of three weeks. You had the prayer Jordan Hare that went the, the 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 tip pass against Georgia that ended up going for a touchdown in the game that Aaron Murray did everything a quarterback could ever do to win the game, and Georgia still managed to not win the game at Auburn that year. And then they came back a couple of weeks later after that and had the kick six. It took two of the most extraordinary plays in college football history to get Auburn into that SEC championship game that year that eventually got Auburn into the national championship game that year where they lost uh, in a fairly convinced, I mean, they didn't get blown out, but I mean, it wasn't an extremely competitive game with Florida State that year. So what you really have in Malzahn is a coach that he's supposed to be this offensive genius. He's supposed to be this elite coach, except that he's not. And, you know, and the fact that you know he's not an offensive genius is the fact that the big story coming into this season was the fact that he had brought Chad Morris in as his offensive coordinator and play caller. If Malzahn is so great at calling plays and and being an offensive guru, why isn't he calling the plays for his team? You know, Kirby Smart doesn't call the defensive plays, but Kirby Smart is very hands-on with the defense at Georgia. And if the defense underwhelmed or didn't play well, you better believe that Kirby Smart is going to be in there talking to Dan Lanning about every single play. But I think this is the third or fourth time that Malzahn's tried to give up the play calling. And it just doesn't make any sense. So as, as overrated as I think Gus Malzahn is as a head coach, it pales in comparison to how overrated his quarterback is. So, If you don't know, Bo Nix is the quarterback of Auburn. He is a sophomore. He played last year and started from the beginning of the season as a true freshman. And he has this statistic to go for him, that he is the greatest quarterback in Auburn history whose dad played at Auburn and whose name is Bo Nix. That is his claim to fame. They'll talk about it 475 times on the broadcast tomorrow night. You're going to hear how many times. Bo Nix's dad played at Auburn. Cool. What does that have to do with him being a quarterback? You're also going to hear about what a dynamic playmaker he has, and and he's taken a big step forward, and what a game changer he is. But there is no evidence that he is a game changer. Just look at his numbers from 2019. Well, let's start with this, that in in 14 games that he has played as a college quarterback, in nine of those games, he has thrown for less than 200 yards. Last year, 57% completion percentage, 15 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, and he was sacked 15 times. 
Now, he is a mobile guy, and he ran for uh, he ran 91 times for 301 yards. Now, the problem with that is that his his, his offensive numbers are going to or his rushing numbers are going to be um, brought down a little bit by that sack total. And he also had 17 touchdowns running the ball. So, put together, he had 22 touchdowns and six interceptions, and he took 15 sacks. That is good, but that is not great. Auburn beat three ranked teams in 2019. They started with a primetime win over Oregon. You might remember that game. It was competitive. Justin Herbert, who is now the uh, quarterback of the San Diego Chargers, had a chance to throw into the end zone for a game-winning Hail Mary at the end of that game. He threw it out of the back of the end zone like an idiot. Um, But number 11, Oregon, that was the big win last year for Auburn to start their season. Bo was 13 of 31 for 177 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. They went on the road and they played Texas A&M, number 17 in the nation. They won the game. Bo was 12 of 20 for 100 yards and a touchdown. The longest pass he completed that day was 19 yards. Now, the most significant win that Auburn will have in any season is beating Alabama. And the, the Tigers beat Alabama last year. Number five, Alabama, at Jordan-Hare. But Bo was 15 of 30 for 173 yards and a touchdown. In Auburn's 21 to 14 loss to Georgia, two weeks before that Alabama win, Bo was 30 of 50 for 245, a touchdown and two sacks. He also ran the ball 13 times for 42 yards and a touchdown. So you could really say that he was far more impressive in the loss to Georgia than he was in any of those big wins they had earlier in the season. And I want to make sure that I'm being clear with what I'm saying right now. Bo Nix is a fine starting quarterback. Okay, given Georgia's quarterback situation right now, I'd take him at Georgia in a heartbeat. But when you hear people talk about him, if you watch game day tomorrow, which is going to be here in Athens, you're going to hear them talk about Bo Nix like he's a Heisman Trophy contender. And maybe through the course of this season, maybe he'll do that. But there is nothing in his resume, there is nothing statistically that tells you that he deserves to be talked about this way. I know a lot of opposing um, fans used to get so frustrated because nothing Jake Fromm did was impressive. Except Jake Fromm just won so much. And you can't deny that he won so much. He was 11-1 and won three straight seasons as a starting quarterback. Bo Nix doesn't even win like that. They lost multiple, they lost three games last year, which is not terrible. I mean, they were 9-3. and three. They were a solid team. They beat Alabama. Obviously, that's a successful uh, season for Auburn. But to talk about Bo Nix as one of the best quarterbacks in the country, it's just not there. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's a story. I don't know if it's the whole his dad played there, now he's playing there. I don't know. But the media seems to be really, really excited to tell you how great Bo Nix is, except that there's really not any evidence there that he's even close to being that great. Kind of like his head coach. Now, as we get ready to play the enemy tomorrow and to play Auburn for what feels like maybe the 175th time in the history of the two schools. There is one player that's going to get a lot of talk, and he deserves every single bit of it for Auburn, and that's number 18, the wide receiver Seth Williams. He's a junior. He's 6'3", 211 pounds. Against Kentucky last week, he had six receptions for 112 yards and two touchdowns. Last season, 59 catches, 830 yards, and eight touchdowns. Now, I feel like we need to give this a little bit of context because I just threw a lot of numbers at you, and you're like, okay, but is that really good? Is that not? Georgia feels like they have an elite, and they do have, an elite wide receiver in George Pickens. Last year, Pickens had 49 catches, 727 yards, and eight touchdowns. So if you can remember just a few seconds ago, Williams had 10 more catches last year for about 100 more yards and the same number of touchdowns. So the conclusion that we can draw about Seth Williams is he's a dude. And he's a dude that, if you remember second down, he's a dude that's going to cause Georgia some problems. I do not see in a single week how Georgia's secondary is going to be able to make enough adjustments to shut this guy down. And if Georgia's not able to shut this guy down, I'm afraid he may go for a whole lot more than 112 yards than he, like he did last week against Kentucky. 
This guy could be a difference maker. He's big. He's got long arms. He's got a huge frame. As I said, he's 211 pounds. That's compared to George Pickens' 190 pounds. So he's definitely not as fast as George Pickens, but he is a physical specimen. And the only guy in the lead up to this that I've heard anybody say might be able to go one-on-one against him and have any kind of success is Tyson Campbell because Campbell is tall. But it's going to be a huge challenge for Georgia's offense or defense, excuse me, to be able to figure out a way to slow down Seth Williams. He is a guy that should be coming out of school this year and playing in the NFL this time next year. Their number two receiver is Eli Stove. He's one of those guys, and I'm sure there's plenty of guys. Ben Cleveland's this guy for Georgia. You feel like he's been there for 475 years. I feel like Eli Stove's been there for exactly that, 475 years. Last year, or sorry, last week, four catches, 55 yards, and a touchdown versus Kentucky. If Georgia double teams Williams, which I think they might have to do from time to time, even though Georgia really doesn't like the double team guys, uh, Stove is another guy kind of a a speedier version on the other side that might be able to burn Georgia. The issue for Auburn and their offense, you know, Nix is solid. He's going to be able to do okay. Georgia's going to probably, I think Georgia will do an okay job of containing him in the run game because I think Georgia will just put a spy on him. Now, whether it's Monty Rice or somebody else, Georgia's going to spy Nix, and then they're going to be able, I think, to at least limit how much damage he's able to do on the ground. The problem is on the ground for Auburn because they did not run the ball well last week at all. Nix was their leading rusher with 34 yards, but their top three running back, Sean uh, Shivers, what a great name for a running back, DJ Williams, and then one-time Georgia commit, Tank Bigsby, another great name for a running back. Um, Those guys rushed for 29, 21, and 15 yards respectively. So if Auburn is not able to run the ball, I think that's going to completely change the dynamic because as much as I am worried about Georgia's defense, especially in the secondary coming into this game, if Auburn is one-dimensional, Kirby Smart will figure out a way to shut them down. Think about the fact that Kirby Smart has been able to shut down some really great offenses in his time in Athens. They weren't able to do it at LSU in a historically good offense last year, but this is not LSU's offense. And the reality is Kirby's had a lot of success against when he was at Alabama's defensive coordinator and as head coach at Georgia. He's had a lot of success against Gus Malzahn. And Gus Malzahn offense is even going back to when Malzahn was the offensive coordinator for Auburn under Gene Chizik. Kirby knows this offense. Kirby knows how to slow it down. It's not to say that there's no way Auburn wins this game, but I really feel very comfortable that Georgia can do what they need to do defensively to slow Auburn down enough. You have a lot of the national folks that are talking about this being a defensive struggle. And in 2020, I don't know what that means. I haven't heard a lot of score predictions. I just hear people say, oh, it's going to be tight. It's going to be a low scoring. It's going to be a physical game. You know, all of these things that people say when they don't really have a good read on it. Well, I'm going to go ahead. I didn't give a prediction last week, and it was I felt pretty stupid at halftime that I didn't because uh, I kind of took it for granted that people thought, or that I thought that everybody knew that Georgia would win against Arkansas last week. And I looked that that not only did they win, but if you got them early in the week at 26 and a half, Georgia covered. But this week, I'm going to go ahead and I'll tell you, I think Georgia wins the game 24-13. I think Georgia's able to slow down this Auburn offense significantly. And I think the Georgia offense will play much better than it did last week whether that's Stetson Bennett, whether DeJuan Mathis gets in there and does it, whether JT Daniel. Now, 24 points in 2020 is not an offensive blowout. And I don't think anything's going to happen this week that's going to make Georgia fans feel uh, a lot more comfortable about the offense moving forward. But I think it will be an overall more positive offensive uh, game for Georgia. And I think we will do a better job of establishing who we are. Hopefully, Georgia will be able to figure things out on the offensive line of scrimmage and be able to run the ball a little bit, whether it's Samir or Cook or anybody. I don't care who it is. Run the ball enough to take pressure off of Bennett and hopefully open up the passing game a little bit more because it was obvious last week, Munkin wants to throw the ball. And so just like Auburn's offense is not going to be able to be effective with throwing the ball with no run game, 
It's the same for Georgia's offense. I think Georgia's good enough. I think this is kind of a course correction for Georgia. Like I said, early in the podcast today, everybody is drawing conclusions off of last week. And the conclusion is Georgia's not nearly as good as we thought they were going to be. And Auburn is really, really great. I think this is going to pull it back to what we thought. If eight days ago I asked you or and I asked any expert in the country about Georgia versus Auburn, Georgia would be picked almost by everybody because the perception of the two programs and everything we knew about them was Georgia's going to be really good, Auburn's going to be good, but they're just not quite there yet. We have one week of game, Georgia's a little underwhelming, Auburn, I guess, was impressive because people saw that they beat a Kentucky team that a lot of people thought they were going to lose to. They beat them by 16, so now all of a sudden we've completely flipped the script. So, what we need to do as a Georgia fan is you need to look at this and say, let's really take our emotions out of it. Let's take out what we saw in the first half last week. And do we really think Gus Malzahn and Bo Nix are going to come into here to Athens and win a game? I don't, and I hope I'm right. Move on today to this week's viewing guide. Once again, there's really not a whole lot of Thursday or Friday night games to be excited about. Uh, I haven't seen anything uh, from the Big Ten yet, but apparently one of the things the Big Ten is going to do this season is add a Friday night game every single week. So if they end up putting some decent games on there, that may uh, give us a little bit more to look at on Friday night. And I do think there's a game between Tech and Clemson in a couple of weeks on a Thursday night. So hopefully the midweek or kind of, I guess, end of the week games, um, that hopefully they'll start getting a little bit better so we can start getting excited on a Thursday or a Friday night for some college football. But again, this week we're going to start at noon, and we're going to start with the game that's going to come on ESPN right after game day from Athens. South Carolina, off of a tough loss at home last week to Tennessee, uh, on the road at number three and really, really great Florida. Let's just believe that, okay? Florida's the 17.5 point favorite. As I said, this game's going to be on ESPN. So here's the deal. This is Will Muschamp on the road against his former team in a in a very tough situation. We talked about South Carolina's issues this year and the schedule they have early in this season. And if they lose this game, it's going to be tough sledding the next few weeks. Now, I'm not picking the upset here, but I do think 17 and a half, just for me, that seems like a lot. Mike Bobo and this offense last week for South Carolina actually looked like they had a little bit of life in them. And I do believe that Will Muschamp's defense will be able to slow the Gators down much more than we saw Ole Miss be able to do last week against Kyle Trask and company. So I think this will be a fairly close game. I wouldn't be surprised if Florida ends up winning by two touchdowns. But if I were going to pick this game against the spread, I would take South Carolina because I don't think the Gators cover the 17 and a half. There's Two other games at noon that I think would be fun to keep an eye on. TCU at Texas. Texas is now the highest ranked team in the Big 12 after Oklahoma's uh, discouraging, at least from a Big 12 standpoint, loss last week against Kansas State. To me, this is the same time frame that that, that Fox big noon game Um I would not be shocked to see TCU at least put a scare into Texas. Texas Tech nearly beat Texas last week. So I don't know anything about TCU. I, You know, Texas is favored by 12. I just know that it seems more and more like that 12 o'clock kickoff on Fox, whether it be a Big Ten game or a Big 12 game, it seems like that game gives us some pretty interesting results. So this game's going to be kicking off at 11 a.m. local. So we'll see uh, – We'll see how it goes for Texas. But if the Big 12 is going to really push into the college football playoff, at this point it looks like Texas may be their best bet. The third game at noon is going to be on the SEC Network, Missouri, on the road at Tennessee. We talked about South Carolina and Tennessee last week. Tennessee won that game. They didn't look insanely impressive doing it, but they won the game. Now they come home, they're 21st in the country, they're favored by 12.5 against a Missouri team that really did not look good at all against Alabama last week. And again, I think this game's going to be a little bit close. Now 12.5 to me, that seems about right. I would actually take Tennessee to cover. I think they're going to end up winning by two touchdowns. But I would not be surprised if this is an interesting game for the majority of the game because Missouri, I think, at least defensively, is going to be able to do enough to slow down Tennessee. So it'll just be a question of whether or not 
Missouri can do anything on offense. When you move into 3.30 on paper, it's one of the more intriguing games of the day on CBS, the CBS game of the week. Texas A&M, number 13 in the country, going into Tuscaloosa to play the Crimson Tide, who are ranked number two. Uh, the problem is, if you watched Texas A&M against Vanderbilt last week, there are so many questions about this team. Offensively, defensively, head coach, $75 million 10-year deal for uh their head coach a couple years ago, and man, the Texas A&M people are nervous about Jimbo Fisher right now. I think Alabama is going to wipe the floor with Texas A&M. That's what I've been hearing from most of the experts all week picking this game. I don't think this is close. I think this is one of those games that make people go, ooh. And I think Texas A&M, just in general, is overrated at number 13. So I think they're going to lose by three or four touchdowns, and I don't think this is ever going to be competitive. But, hey, CBS picked it as the game of the week, so it's the game of the week. If that game gets out of control, you got Ole Miss and Kentucky playing on the SEC Network. Uh, this is, you know, a big game for Kentucky. And because last week, as I said, Kentucky has expectations this year. Kentucky thought they could compete this year, and they went on the road, and they played okay for a little while against Auburn, but they ended up really falling apart. Uh, in that second half. Now they're six-point favorites at home against Ole Miss, an Ole Miss team that, as we said in the open, put 600 yards up against uh, Florida last week. So I actually think this is going to be an upset. I think Ole Miss could go into Kentucky and just completely ruin uh, this this start for Coach Stoops and the Kentucky Wildcats. It's kind of crazy. I was high on Kentucky last week, but after watching them play, and really more than anything, after watching them kind of fold, it really feels like an aggressive Ole Miss team could go in there and win that game. And I think it'll be an entertaining game. Obviously, if you're a Georgia fan, 730, it's going to be Auburn and Georgia on ESPN. So this is the ESPN game, uh, but game day's in town, Kirk Herb Street. Chris Fowler, they're going to be the ones calling the game. So it should be, it should have a big game feel under the lights in a 20% field, Sanford Stadium. Um, you know, one thing my wife and I were talking about, I don't know what Athens on a quasi game day is going to be like. So this is going to be interesting. I, I You know, watching a couple of games last weekend, um, you could hear a crowd. Obviously, it's not the same as when the building is full. Uh, I did not feel like you could hear anybody when I was watching the Georgia-Arkansas game. I don't know if there was something about the way they had the crowd mic'd or not mic'd, but uh, I would expect as, as raucous as an atmosphere as 22,000 people can make in a stadium that seats 90,000. Uh, that's what I would expect, at least to kick off tomorrow night. As I've already mentioned, Georgia, actually, I don't think I did mention it. Georgia is a seven-point favorite over Uh, Auburn tomorrow night despite the fact that nobody thinks Auburn is going to lose everybody's picking Auburn to win Georgia the people in Vegas think Georgia are seven point favorite Uh, another game happening over on ABC uh, at 730 number 18 Oklahoma fresh off of their loss against Kansas State on the road at Iowa State now I'm not going to be watching that game obviously I'm going to be watching Georgia and Auburn and I think that's what you should do too but in commercial breaks flip it over there and see you know if Oklahoma goes on the road to Iowa State and loses, they're out. I don't care what else happens. They can win the next eight. They can go eight and two, but with those two losses, there's no chance they make the college football playoff. So nine and one and then, you know, winning a Big 12 championship game, there's a chance that Oklahoma could get back into this. But this is a – this is now it's every week is a must win for Oklahoma. So it'll be very interesting to see how they react after that loss on the road on Saturday night. And then after the Georgia-Auburn game finishes, or again during commercials, Virginia on the road at number one, Clemson. Clemson didn't play last week, so it feels like it's been 100 years since we've seen the Tigers play. They are 28.5-point favorites against Virginia. I don't think you're going to learn much about Clemson watching this game. They're going to blow the doors off Virginia. But just to see the number one team in the country play, there are worse things in the world. So that is this week's viewing guide. Enough good games to uh, keep you interested, but I'll go ahead and tell you this week, not nearly as good as last week, as far as kind of balance throughout the day and interesting games and interesting storylines. But next week is even better. There's a lot of good games coming up next week. So peek ahead at the schedule, but we'll cover that on next week's podcast. So as I already admitted to, I am 0-1 in my pick of the year of the week. But 
we're going to get right. I, I, I let my hate for Auburn and what I and all the bad things that I wanted to have happen to the Auburn Tigers. I let that cloud my judgment last week, and I cost you every dollar you have. And so I'm very sorry about that. But what I need you to do right now is go to your neighbor's house, if, as long as they're not home. Use some sort of instrument to break into their house and steal their money so you can put it all on this week's peak of the year of the week. And I'm going away from teams, you know, getting out of the SEC a little bit because, again, I just my, – my hate for some of these teams is just too strong. So this week, the pick of the year of the week that you are sure to make a ton of money on if you bet the game, Virginia Tech going on the road only – only laying 12 points at a putrid, terrible, disgustingly bad Duke team. Virginia Tech, they, they couldn't play the first couple of year, weeks of the season. They got a couple games canceled with Virginia because of COVID and everything like that. They were missing 20 players last week. Most of those players are going to be back this week. But they were missing 20 players from their roster last week, and they still beat NC State by 21 points. Duke, meanwhile, is 0-3. They've already lost to Virginia, Boston College, and Notre Dame. The Duke offense has been absolutely Charles Barkley terrible so far this year. They're only scoring 13 points a game. Virginia Tech, like I said, the 12-point favorite on the road at Duke. That is how you're going to make up all the money you lost last week on Kentucky. You're going to bet everything you have and everything your neighbor has in their house after you steal their money. Take Virginia Tech, lay the points on the road at Duke because that is this week's pick of the year. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It is a Saturday evening in the Classic City. We're going to tee it up between the hedges, between Georgia and Auburn. It's one of the greatest rivalries in all of college football. It's one of Georgia's biggest rivals. It's Saturday night. It's 7.30 kickoff under the lights in Sanford Stadium. You know, this has been a very rough year when it comes to sports. We feel like we have missed out on so much, not just in sports, but just in life. Tomorrow night is one of those times when everything stops and everything turns to watching football on a Saturday night in Sanford Stadium. I think the dogs are going to get it done. I don't know how. I don't really know why. I, it's just a passion thing. We believe in our dogs. We believe in our team. Go dogs. 24-13. That's what we're going to see tomorrow night. The dogs are going to win. They're going to flip the script on Auburn. They're going to make the narrative much, much different. I don't care if it's Stetson Bennett. I don't care if it's DeJuan Mathis. I don't care if Kirby Smart suits up himself and goes in there and plays quarterback. None of that matters. We hate the Tigers. We're going to beat the Tigers. You know why? Because 12 out of the last 15 years, Georgia has beaten Auburn. And you know why? Because when I was walking out of Sanford Stadium in 2005, after one of the most gut-wrenching losses that Georgia has ever had at home and the the most gut-wrenching loss that I ever witnessed with my own two eyes. I was walking out of that stadium, walking back the long trek up to where, for some ungodly reason, we used to park when we were in college. And as I was walking out of that stadium, there was this little seven, eight-year-old kid, about the age of my oldest son now, walking out of the stadium with his father. He had all his Auburn stuff on, and he was so happy. And he's like, Dad, I just love beating Georgia. And for the first time in my life, and as now that I'm a parent, I can't say this anymore, but for the first time in my life, I wanted to punch that kid in the face. I don't know that kid's name. I don't know where he is now. But for that stupid snot-nosed kid, Georgia's going to whip Auburn tomorrow night between the hedges and keep the Tigers tamed for another year. I hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy the games. And as always, go dogs, beat Auburn.